It is time to open up the Word of God and think together about things from God's perspective. Our study passage on Truth Encounter today is one of the favorites of all time, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is a passage well worth reading every day. Our Bible teacher, Dave Wurtson, picks up the discussion appropriately by mentioning D.L. Moody. Even if I can speak like D.L. Moody, like Billy Graham, if I don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. I think of a young seminary student in my own life, when you're getting your training, you look up at some of the great, great communicators of the faith. Prof. Hendricks was my... Uh, you know, the person I wanted to be like, he moved in my life, was used by the Spirit of my life as a young kid. I remember hearing Prof. Hendricks get up before like Sunday school conventions and being able to hold those conventions in the palm of his hand and see him powerfully used by the Holy Spirit. And it's easy for a young man to begin to say, if I can do that, then I will have it. If I can speak like that. You know, it's possible to speak and to be able to give all that kind of teaching and to do it without love. Instead, to be motivated by pride. And that's an area that I want you to be in prayer for me because pride is a vicious thing. It takes you from a, an, a feeling of exhilaration. It takes you from a feeling of, look how great I am, to the pits of despair. And I find it's a very powerful force within me. In other words, if it seems like things are going well, if it seems like the, the teaching of God's Word is reaching people's hearts and it's building you up, then it's easy to feel elated and for it to be pride. Look what I've done. But then a word of criticism, criticism can come and it can turn around just like that. And for several days you can be in the pits of despair. And all that is the vicious cycle of doing it for pride. And no pastor is immune from that. And I'm certainly not. And what Paul is reminding us, he says, Dave, and he says, every one of you, speaking, communicating the truths of God, meeting people's needs through the teaching of God's inspired word, even if you can do it effectively, is not the ground of the spiritual life. It needs to be done with the desire to express the love of Christ and to express love for others. Then he turns to some gifts of miracles. He turns to the gift of being able to perform mighty wonders, which the Corinthians put a great stock in as well. He says this, If I have faith that I can move mountains, remember that mountain-moving faith? To faith to remove mountains it was a rabbinic phrase that meant to be able to do extraordinary, miraculous things. If I have that kind of faith, in other words, I have the faith of a mustard seed and I can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. In other words, if I have this incredible gift to be able to see what God wants to do in a situation, and I can do mighty miracles, maybe even exercise a demon, Paul says this, if I don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. Then he turns from these gifts of speaking, these gifts of miraculous activity, to some gifts that often, down through church history, have become very eminent. He says this, If I give all I possess to the poor, if I listen to, if I listen to men like Ron Sider, rich Christians in a hungry world, and I become very convicted about that, and materialism is rampant in the evangelical church. And so what can happen is I can begin to feel material things are wrong. 
Material things are evil. I need to give them all up. And so I sell all of my goods and I give them to the poor. Now what could be more spiritual than that? A whole group of Christendom, down through the centuries, there's been those that have taken vows of poverty. John Stott, a famous Anglican preacher, is saying that if he had it to all do again, if he was a young man beginning again in his life, that he would initiate a Protestant monasticism, that he would encourage a vow of celibacy and of poverty and of a commitment to nonviolent activity. That's an incredible statement. Because what he's saying is that that is what will produce Christianity in a genuine, authentic way. The tragedy is that Scripture says, beware of those who call us to forbid marriage. 1 Timothy chapter 6 does not tell the wealthy to liquidate all of their funds. It says to be generous. Jesus never taught that money in itself was evil. In fact, when we begin to move into some of those extreme positions, in history teaches us that it flip sides just like that, and the very group that was taking a vow of poverty becomes the hoarding place of all the wealth, which is what happened in Middle Age monasticism. What Paul says, even if you give your gifts, you sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Not that that's a bad thing. The Lord might lead some of you to do that, might lead me to do that. Mary says, horrors, no. The Lord says, even if we do that, if we don't have the right motivation, if we don't have love, then it's a blasphemous act that's bringing glory to ourselves. Then we take the ultimate thing, which in church history as the second century began to develop in the third century, probably the eminent act of spirituality became martyrdom. In fact, G.B. Carrot, as he interpreted the book of Revelation, held that the book of Revelation taught that martyrdom was the ultimate gift. And that the, only the martyrs were those who entered into the glory of the millennial kingdom. And that's a, a flavor of this kind of an idea. If I give my body to the flames, and there's a textual problem here, and both of them have very early attestation. One reading that some of you might have, if I give my body, if I give my body over so that I might boast. That's one of the readings. And another reading is if I give my body to be burned. The idea of giving my body so that I might boast is to allow my body to suffer, to be imprisoned like Paul. Second Corinthians has a lot of discussion about uh, Paul giving his body over and being willing to accept suffering for the cause of Christ. Personally, I don't believe that that is the earliest reading because I feel that to give my body to be burned, it, it would be much easier for a, a scribe trying to protect martyrdom and trying to make martyrdom an eminent gift. It would be much easier for him to add the interpretive phrase which brings out the motivation that I might boast. But it also makes the case evident immediately. In other words, obviously we would all know if someone gave their body over to suffering so that they could boast, obviously it's wrong. And in the earlier verses, Paul isn't that direct. It's, it's more nuanced. And so I think of, uh, the, the, the more original phrases, if I give my body so that I might be burned, remind us of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as an illustration of that gift of faith. Paul says, even if I give my body for martyrdom, 
And I think that the textual difference brings out the motivation that's underneath this wrong kind of martyrdom, which is pride. He said, it doesn't profit me anything. So brothers and sisters, what the Apostle Paul is telling us here in these first four verses is that spiritual giftedness is not the measure of spiritual character. It doesn't make any difference how gifted we are. That's not the measure of our spiritual character. Spiritual gifts of revelation become brash and offensive. The faith to work miracles, the sacrifice of one's possessions, or life become blasphemous acts of selfish ambition when not done in love. And then Paul's overarching theme in these first three verses is love must be the motivating factor in all spiritual service. Now let's ask ourselves, what in the world is love? What is love? Well, Paul brings out and he fleshes out love in everyday life by telling us the way that love acts and the way that it doesn't act. And then he tells us about some characteristics that are love's associates. And when we put it all together, we get a very keen character sketch of the living Christ, which needs to become the character sketch of our own life. He begins like this. Love acts patiently. In Greek, there is a verb for patiences. In English, there isn't. And so I like to translate it, love acts patiently. It's not a, a state of idea of love is patient. Because that's something that brings to mind. I have an attitude of patience. My emotions are patient. Sometimes our emotions are not patient, but we can act in patience by the gift of the life of Christ in our life. Love acts patiently. Now, this is a patience towards others. How do you react when somebody sledgehammers you? And I'll show you how convicting this gets. When we were on our vacation, Joshua and I were walking down by the ocean. Excuse me, and I'll just be really honest. Joshua says to me, Dave, do you and Mommy like one another? And I said, why? Well, you know, we had just come through a long drive from Dallas, and um, good, you're still awake. That's good. And in Houston, I got in the left-hand lane, and the left-hand lane went wheeling right into downtown Houston and did not keep going straight through to Galveston. And then with my great Daniel Boone sensitivity to direction, I decided that we could keep going down this stretch of road and eventually we would get back where we needed to go. Mary was angry. <laughs> I was silent, which is the way that I expressed my anger. The boys were climbing on mom, leave dad alone. Several hours later, we finally ended up back on the... No, no, really, for once, it worked out fairly well, except when I got back on the road that would take us back to where we needed to go. Then there was a traffic jam. So we took even longer. So Joshua, you know, very... The expositor in our, in our individual family says, Do you like Mommy? I said, Yeah, Joshua. In fact, I not only like her, I love her. He said, Well, why are you angry all the time? Now, that's what we all need to ask ourselves. And the reason that that's so is because Satan is working in our individual family life and in our church family life to help us not to be patient 
toward one another. Jesus acts patiently toward one another. In fact, to make it even heavier, Jesus not only acts patiently towards one another, but Jesus acts in kindness towards his enemy. That phrase, love acts kindly, is in this context of patience towards someone who's hurting you. You see, what a lot of you have the idea is, and I, I, I can easily fall into this. To me, patience is being silent. And the way that I express my anger, and, and the more that I work with people, this is a very dominant, destructive way. Some of you are the hitters. You come right out. You come out yelling, and you come out slugging. You come out straightforward. We really know what's going on inside of you. Now, the Lord wants you to learn to be patient and to not spill acid all over everybody. But some of us think that patience is holding it all in. So what I do is I get hurt and I act patiently on the outside, but I withdraw and I'm angry, very angry. And I withdraw from the person and that's not patience. That's anger turned inward and it produces terrible depression in many people's lives and it'll eventually store up a great big tank of acid that'll destroy a church, it'll destroy a family, it will destroy an individual. Love doesn't do that. It acts in kindness. It acts in kindness towards the person that hurts you. Something that I try to do in my own life. If somebody really hurts me, I try to come back and make myself do something kind. Like I share with you, like if an editor, one of the things that really can get me and help me to not be very patient at all, in fact, it makes me feel like I want to quit. And some of you that write articles and stuff will know what I'm talking about. When an editor writes me back and says, we don't like what you did. It stinks. And they don't say it like that. But we don't want to publish it. That makes you angry. Boy, it's easy not to be patient. In fact, it's real easy to hang on to it and to just let it build up and become resentment. Love doesn't do that. Love acts in kindness. So you write a letter and you express the fact that you're praying for that ministry, that you appreciate the gifts of that editor, and that you realize that they have to make very difficult judgments. And I do that more for my own benefit than for the editor. Because it cleans out my pipes. It gets me free again. And we need to do that in our personal relationships. We need to do that in our relationships as husbands and wives. When we're hurt, we need to be kind, not withdraw or not slash out. The positive things that love does, it endures or it is patient with those that do unjust things to it, and then it positively, aggressively acts in kindness. Now we have several things that love does not do. Love is not envious. It doesn't act in jealousy. And that's the idea of wanting what someone else has, coveting it, and then actively seeking to tear down what they have because you don't have jealousy. Love does not boast. It doesn't brag about what it has and what it does. It is not puffed up. The Corinthians were puffed up about their knowledge. They would just swell out like, like a cobra that was, that was swelling its neck. 
They didn't, that, that's not loving. Love does not swell in that kind of pride. So these words all relate to pride as a center of life. It's not envious, that's pride. Instead of accepting what God does for us, we want what someone else has. We can't appreciate somebody else's gifts. And that makes us very defensive about ourselves when we begin to boast about what we can do. And we begin to be arrogant and puffed up. Verse 5, love is not rude or it doesn't act in a shameful way. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul told a young man, if you begin to act in a shameful way towards your virgin, in other words, if as a young man, you begin to reach out to a young woman that's unmarried and you stir desires within her, you stir passions within her, and she begins to love you and you begin to be very powerfully drawn to one another, it's not a loving thing to then say, well, I've taken a vow of celibacy, of not getting married. Paul tells the couple in that case, if you begin to act towards one another with that kind of passion, you should get married. And it would be shameful to act that way towards a woman and then not to culminate that in the marriage relationship. Another shameful action would be the actions of the Corinthians at the Lord's Supper when they met together and the rich would become drunk and become gluttonous and the poor would not have enough. That was a shameful action. And those would be some of the specific things that the Apostle Paul had in mind. Love does not act in rudeness. It, is, it does not seek the things of its own. Boy, that phrase hits home. In our day, the whole concept is on self-fulfillment to find ourselves. I want to say something to you very, very important. If you take a journey into yourself to find the meaning of your life, you're going to find a skunk inside. Because that's what's there. Now, I'm not talking about self-acceptance. Accepting yourself is very important. Accepting the fact that you've been made in the image of God. Accepting the fact that God has graciously reached out to you and wants to express his love to you, that is a healthy biblical idea. But the attitude which says, I've had it with giving to others. I've had it with reaching out and trying to meet other people's needs. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what makes me feel good. That's not love. And rather than building your life, it will destroy your life. Love doesn't deprecate the, the good gift of personality that God has given me and given you. Do you understand that? In fact, love is incredibly at ease and confident with itself. But it's not inward looking, it's outward looking. Christianity says that you find yourself in the ultimate man, Jesus Christ. You find yourself by taking a journey into Him. And as you journey into Him, you end up giving yourself away for others, and then you find out that you've become the most beautiful creation that God intended for you. Love does not seek its own. Love is not irritable. It's not easily angered. We already talked about that. It doesn't keep a record of the wrongs that are done to it. And that's what produces our anger. When slowly but surely we keep a record of the things that people are doing to us. 
You need to ask yourself that in your, in your church life. Has someone hurt you? And have you kept a record of it? You need to ask that in your marital life. Has something happened? I find that couples keep a whole list of records of wrongs that have been done. And then a given argument comes up and it can flash out. That's what produces, I don't love you anymore. I want to get out of here. I just have to escape. It's keeping a record of wrongs. And then it makes you irritable. It makes you anger, angry. Give those things up. Love never delights in evil. Boy, that's a convicting one. You know, there's a, I think that's one of the most perverse realities of our sin nature outside of Christ. There's a part of us that actually rejoices in wickedness. That's why we entertain ourselves with all the ghastly stories that happen. There's a part of us that says, oh boy, look at that. That's exciting. It kind of relieves some of the boredom. The Apostle Paul teaches that is the incredible indication of the evil that's within us because love never rejoices in wickedness. Instead, it rejoices together with truth. Love is the companion of reality. What's genuinely going on, what is really true. Love delights in the truth, never with evil. Love always protects, or love keeps a cloak of silence over what is displeasing in another would be one way to look at it. It's also possible to take it that love always stands up. It never falters. Love always trusts. That doesn't mean that love believes everything. Love is not naive. Love is not naive. What it means that it believes all things is that it believes in the sovereignty of God and it hopes confidently that God will fulfill all of his promises. These two middle alls, believe all, hope all, relate to the all of God's sovereign, gracious, good plan. That's why love can stand up. Because it knows that the Heavenly Father will come through in the end. So it doesn't believe everything. It's not naive. It's not blind. It's not the statement, love is blind. That's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is that in every situation, love's faith doesn't falter. It keeps going. It is strong. Love's faith doesn't falter. Love's hope doesn't sag. It hangs on. Then it closes this section of what love is. Always Love always perseveres. And that leads us into the final section where Paul talks about the enduring, eternal quality of love as the Apostle Paul highlights that the Corinthians were hanging on to gifts that were temporary. The Apostle Paul is teaching us that the Corinthians had put in, put, placed all of their stress upon gifts that did not have an eternal dimension. They were things that would pass away. As we think about our own lives, I want to ask you, I want to ask myself, is the meaning of my life something that in heaven will mean nothing, will not be that important? You see, if I pour all my life and my eminent goal is just to get theological knowledge so that I can come up to you and I can teach you and I can wow you with my theological insight, you know what? When we get into heaven, you won't need me at all. 
Because you'll all have that knowledge, just like that. You'll be known even as you are known. You'll all be doctors of theology, doctors of the doctors. You'll be in the mind of God. You see, if I make knowledge my ultimate goal and my communicative gift my ultimate goal, in heaven, it's no longer needed because you'll all, we'll all have that knowledge. And that's why Paul says that any of us that begin to focus on whether it's giving our body and martyrdom or giving up our material goods and we begin to say, this is what spirituality is, we'll miss it. And I find again and again in my life, in fact, Mary's placed this up in the kitchen so that every time I wash my hands, I look right at this list. Love, love acts patiently. Love acts in kindness. And I'm down through the list. And that's where it needs to become a reality in our everyday life. And it needs to become the prayer. I want to say this as we close. Like I said in the beginning, I think this passage can really discourage us. Because if I am honest, I'm irritable at times. I'm angry at times. I keep a record. I take criticism very, very bad. I get puffed up and I boast like crazy when things go well. It's easy to take the good gifts that God has given and for it to become, look what I did. This is a hard chapter for me. How about for you? But I'm not discouraged about it this morning. I love this chapter because it's what Christ is inside of me. And I believe with all my heart that some of you are beginning to see these kind of qualities developing as a gift of the Spirit in my life. I know that because I see them in your life. You know, our church family will always be strong. It will always be powerful for God from a heavenly perspective if this is the prayer every day of our life.